0: This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail.com or you can find me on Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Welcome back. I was asked if I'd like to run the New York City Marathon the other day and I said no because I'm not built like a marathoner. I'm too tall, too much weight. My legs aren't that long. It's not like I'm out of shape. I'm actually in decent shape. I just don't have a runner's build. It's just not for me. I mean, I could probably do it if I trained. I couldn't go do it today. If I trained, I could probably get an adequate enough shape to go do it. It would be painful, I know, because I ran a half marathon once. That was enough. Miserable. I also did the Mount Washington hill climb, which is a bike race, actually. Mount Washington is the tallest mountain on the East Coast. And there's a bike race that goes basically straight uphill for, I, th- I think it's only six miles, maybe it's seven miles, something like that, but it's straight uphill. There's not a single flat portion of the entire race. The winner, the year that I did it, was Tyler Hamilton. Tyler Hamilton uh, was a world-class Olympic cyclist, raced on Lance Armstrong's uh, Tour de France team, I believe, no slouch. I mean a professional about as good as they get in the world so it took him 58 minutes meaning he averaged 6 miles an hour going up the Mount Washington hill climb 6 you can almost walk 6 miles an hour I mean it's a it's a jog but it's not a sprint 10 minutes a mile on his bike a world class cyclist so unpleasant straight uphill ride for 6 miles 7 miles something like that it took me longer than 58 minutes it took me a little less than 2 hours so I average you know, about three miles an hour. That is about walking speed, that's turtle-like. That was also a miserable, painful, horrible experience. Now I like physical activity. I like playing basketball, I like playing sports, I like to run, I like to exercise. But if I'm doing something aerobic, like running or riding a bike, longer than an hour, then I get irritable. Which is something I've learned about myself. So I've learned I'm not a marathoner. I'm not a Tour de France candidate. I'm built a certain way. I'm better at some sports than other sports. I'm not really built to do long-distance, massive endurance-type races where you need to be light on your feet, long legs in proportion to your body so that your legs are carrying relatively little weight, proportionally speaking. So I've done enough stuff like this at this point in my life That when someone asks me if I'd like to do the New York City Marathon to train for it, my answer is almost automatic. No, no thank you. It's not for me. Now there are some people out there in the world who are insistent. Oh, come on, you can do it. Everyone can do it. You just need to try. It's mind over matter. Oh, come on. They attempt to shame you into doing something that you know is going to be unpleasant. In my younger years, I would fall susceptible to these sorts of enticements by these kind of people. But now I just say, nope, be gone, depart from me, get thee behind me. And why is that? Because I maybe know on the one hand, yeah, I guess everybody could do it if we really wanted to, but it, but it wouldn't be worth it for me. It wouldn't be pleasant, and so I'm not swayed by their pleadings or their shaming or however you want to think about it, their rah-rah shaming. I'm not going to be swayed by that because I have my own training, experience. I know my body. I know what it can do and what it can't do well. I know what it's more built naturally to do and I know what it's relatively, I know what's relatively unnatural for it to do. And so the rah-rah persuaders, the people trying to convince me to do something that I know my body is not naturally built to do, those people don't have the sway over me now because I know. We've all had that experience, haven't we? We're presented with something, some sort of choice, some perceived opportunity, some kind of program. And there's some person out front, rah, 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 cheering us on, trying to convince us to do it, using all sorts of positive and negative tactics, manipulations. It can amount to browbeating or shaming. or but it, but it basically boils down to salesmanship of some sort. There's some person out there, and we've all had this experience, there's some person out there driving this, the agenda, to get us to do something, to get us to take some, quote, opportunity, or to undertake some endeavor, or to chip in, to put our shoulders up against the wheel and start pushing. There's somebody, it seems like, at least we've all had the experience where that's the case, anyways. There's somebody jumping up and down in front of everybody, rah rahing the rah-rah person. And It's hard to think clearly about something, to think objectively, given, given what you know about yourself or given what you think you know about yourself, given what you're estimating if it's something that you've never engaged in before. It's hard to think clearly about all these sort of things when there's some person rah, 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 browbeating, 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 shaming, 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 encouraging, encouraging, carrot, carrot, stick, stick. When, when there's someone doing that all the time in your ear, it's hard to think. It's hard to hear yourself think. It's hard to choose because it's not an uninfluenced choice. It's not a free choice because the raw rah gets all mixed up with what you're trying to decide to do or not, and it gets all confused, and then you end up trying to shut up the rah-rah person while you're trying to decide whether or not you're going to do this other thing. And I remember as a 12-year-old boy growing up in the Midwest in the church, a newly ordained Deacon. I had three friends that I grew up with. We were all about the same age within weeks. So we all became deacons together. Our deacon quorum advisor was well intended. I'm sure his heart was in the right place. He was motivated by good motivations, I think. But he was a rah-rah guy and he insisted, insisted that we all commit to getting up on Sunday and bearing our testimony. To the ward, of course, no one in the quorum wanted to do this, not a single person. maybe maybe Quentin did. There was a guy named Quentin in the quorum. maybe he did, but nobody else did. There's six or seven of us. So we all looked at him glumly, looked at the advisor, glumly, that is not not Quentin, stared at the floor, and were silent. When he asks questions like, well, what do you think of that plan, guys? How do you feel about next Sunday we all get up and we bear our testimony? And it's just one of those questions that you can't say no to, right? You can't say, well, no, I feel terrible about that. I think that's a dumb idea. It's a totally loaded question. And you've got to be fairly sophisticated and fairly mature in your thought process To be able to answer that question in the negative, and yet at the same time not make yourself look like a jerk, or worse, look like the rebellious kid who needs more attention from the ward in order to salvage his testimony, because no one wants to be that kid. No one wants to be the kid in the ward that everyone thinks is faltering in the gospel. And of course, none of us at 12 years old were equipped with the tools. We were not sophisticated enough to respond to that loaded question from our earnest, well-meaning, but our rah-rah and somewhat clueless deacon's advisor, in spite of the fact that no one, I think, in the quorum wanted to, next week, get up and bear a testimony. But none of us had the clever arguments that you hear from grown-ups, from people who've been to college or graduate school or who had lived long enough to kind of say things in a way that preserve one's authority, yet at the same time address the question honestly. Responses like, well, you know... Uh, Brother Jones, I sure would love to give my testimony next week, and I just might if the Spirit moves me, but I'm going to wait and see. I'll commit should the Spirit move me, and I'll commit in the future when the Spirit moves me to to bear my testimony. How's that? Does that work for you? Of course, that's a very sophisticated response. None of us were able at 12 to say that, and so the result was that we felt a little bit bullied, right, by the rah-rah guy. Paradoxically, the rah-rah guy who's trying to get us to do something that he thinks is very positive is actually sort of bullying us and oppressing us and robbing us in the process, paradoxically, of our free choice as 12-year-olds because it's really not a free choice. When you're 12, to be asked by a man in his late 30s or early 40s who's way more sophisticated in the church than you are, by the way, and this guy in particular, he was probably from Utah. Most of the leaders in the Midwest at the time were Utah transplants. So his church pedigree vis-a-vis ours was superior. We were just these half Mormon, half barbarian Midwestern boys. But the end result was that we didn't really have a free choice to bear or not bear our testimony during the upcoming fast and testimony meeting, did we? Our choice was much more loaded than that. It was Agree to this scheme of his or endanger your status in the church or worse, your anonymity and the presumption of the other members that you're a good, compliant, gospel observing young boy who doesn't need the attention, doesn't need to be put on the list because that's the last, that sort of attention is the last thing any 12 year old wants. So, of course, it wasn't a free choice. And, of course, we all agreed that next Sunday we would get up and bear our testimonies, irrespective of the question of whether or not we had one at that time, or for that matter, irrespective of the question if we even understood what a testimony was. You know, that's a weird term, testimony. We've got to build one's testimony. It's a strange concept, even to this day for me. For starters, why do we need to build a testimony? Why do we need to maintain a testimony? It sounds like we're building a case or building an argument for or against something. Maintaining a testimony never really made sense to me. What does it mean to maintain? That implies that we're going to keep something in its current state, like you maintain a car. You keep it exactly the same so it'll keep running how it's designed to run. But you maintain things that never change or evolve. Again, I think I know what they're saying when they say build or maintain a testimony. They're saying, let's construct a thought process, a belief system, that can guide us heuristically through the complexities of life. I, I, I get that. It's just that we don't build, nor do we declare, emotionally, our understanding of any other type of knowledge. Nobody gets up and emotionally bears their testimony of the Pythagorean theorem, for example. No social status accrues to the first person who can get up and declare with certitude... And emotion that two molecules of hydrogen, when joined with one molecule of oxygen, makes water. You know, there's no real conveyance of morale or, or no deep sense of identity associated with these other types of understanding, wisdom, knowledge, nor do you have to construct it. You just kind of know this stuff or you don't. And so constructing and maintaining and declaring testimony is, is a uniquely LDS, maybe uniquely Christian kind of thing. And it's so essential, this declaration. And the stakes are so high. You know, Brother Jones conveyed to us the sense of this high stakes, critically important rite of passage of constructing and then declaring one's testimony. It was critical. And we all felt very compelled to get up and share our testimony per this guy's scheme, which we did. And it was highly, highly, highly unpleasant. It just felt like such a phony inauthentic undertaking for starters it felt like submitting to the mob sort of in a way so that that felt bad there's something kind of Orwellian about the whole experience and again it comes down to this idea of what constitutes a free choice because the choice as presented to me by my deacon's quorum advisor was so loaded with carrots and sticks and agendas and unspoken sub-choices and unspoken sub-consequences, that it really wasn't much of a choice, was it? It was a manipulation. It was almost compulsory. It felt compulsory. Because none of us at that age, at that stage of our lives, had the mental, verbal, emotional skills to extricate ourselves from th- being cornered that way. I suppose for the disaffected, that's what they're expressing. They're expressing feeling cornered by the majority, by those in power, by the leaders, by their parents, by the institution, and not being able to extricate themselves, not being able to, in a way, get out of it, either because they don't have the skills, the sophistication, maybe they don't have the confidence, whatever it is. And so it would have been more compassionate, in my view, for Brother Jones, as earnest and as wonderful as he he was. And his name wasn't Brother Jones, I'm just using that as an... As a proxy name. But but it would have been more compassionate for my deacon's quorum advisor at that time to listen a little bit, see how he really felt, talk a little bit about testimony, and then present us with a choice that we as 12-year-old boys could actually make freely, confidentially, without recrimination and all the other social penalties that accrued with choosing poorly in my earlier example. This experience from my youth, as well as others like it, have shaped, deeply affected, the way that I treat the youth in my ward when I teach them, and that's what I do now. I teach the youth, and I have for most of my adult life. I've taught either youth or children. This experience and others like it have shaped my thought processes in other ways. The experience has forced me to consider whether the church is good or bad, oppressive or loving, fundamentally, Because there are a lot of people out there who point to these type of experiences and experiences that are similar in nature, but happen in the context of marriage, sexuality, all sorts of more, much more serious, much weightier situations. And they come away feeling like they didn't really have a free choice, that they were bullied by a rah-rah person. And that the result was that all of their choices were very loaded choices, Not just about whether or not one should bear one's testimony during the upcoming Fast and Testimony meeting, but about much heavier things like when to get married, how, to whom, what things you should pursue, how much money you should give to the church, how you should serve, what you should deny of yourself, what you shouldn't, how you should feel about your essence as one of God's children. And many feel that they've been compelled, forced, to conduct themselves a certain way in ways that they didn't really want to deep down in their souls that their church experience has basically been equivalent to, on a much grander scale, those of my fellow deacons and me, when presented with the very loaded choice to all agree to bear our testimonies. We've all had these experiences, and we all have to consider is or is not this group that I'm part of oppressing me? And the answer, of course, is both and neither. And there's a bigger question to be asked here, which is what's good about those type of experiences? Because there is much good about those type of experiences even though what's good about those type of experiences sometimes has nothing to do with the specifics of those type of experiences. I know that's also a little circular. I know it's a little weird, a little Eastern, and I know sometimes you get tired of me describing things this way. But the fact is, those type of experiences force you to consider something, many things actually, force you to, of your own free will, think independently and come to your own conclusions about things, Specifically, it stimulates all sorts of thoughts about the role of the institution. What does God really want from me? What are things really like? force is the wrong verb here. You're not being compelled, but you're being stimulated. You're being pushed to consider questions like, what is the testimony? Why is it relevant? And you're not going to consider any of those things, in my view, without the full panoply of experiences, good and bad that you can receive inside a group, a tribe like ours. Because if you're just sitting home, if you're just off in the woods, or if you're just playing in an arena, or on a playground, or on a sports field where everything goes perfectly for you and you always win, you learn nothing. Of course, these sort of statements completely turn on their head our ideas about what the church, the institution, the religion, and the gospel really are and what they're supposed to do. Makes us think about the end game a little more, doesn't it? And even weirder, makes us think whether or not there even is an end game to all this, or if the whole thing is just the process, which raises additional questions like is truth a process in and of itself, or is truth immaculately conceived? Well, you start to ask yourselves these sort of weird, deep questions when you have experiences like I had with the deacon's quorum advisor or the rah-rah person who's trying to convince you to run the New York City Marathon against your better judgment. The specifics of these choices, of these situations, of these social entanglements, often have meaning much deeper than the specifics. It's the more subtle processes that often escape our conscious attention, those things that happen below the surface that we're not usually aware of, that really are the valuable byproducts of such encounters. And if you can't initially, when you're 12 years old, learn to process and react privately and independently to the bullying, though well-meaning, deacon's quorum advisor in your life, then you're going to have a harder time processing the deeper meaning and the potential character-building aspects of getting fired from your job or rejected by your spouse or being marginalized by who knows what. You're going to have a harder time finding meaning from failure. And likewise, you'll have a more difficult time appreciating and valuing the success, the blessings, all that's wonderful in life because all you can do is see how someone's mistreated you and then hold on to the offense and forever play a victim. And playing a victim never brought anyone happiness or peace, nor did playing a victim ever enable anyone to love. Those are hard truths. Who can hear them? Certainly the great alchemists of yesteryear could hear them. And, oddly enough, so could a chicken fetus. A chicken fetus could sure hear these truths and internalize them, because the alchemist turns lead into gold. And the chicken fetus, after consuming all the nutrients of the yolk sac, breaks out of the shell. And so, too, must we begin to think about these processes of transformation, of magic, of turning what on the surface seems to be horrible, terrible mistreatment into a deep, profound understanding and gratitude for the independence that the experience brings, whatever it is. Like the chick, we need to break out of the shell sometimes. And what's interesting about chicks breaking out of shells is they have to do it on their own. If you help a chick break out of a shell, the chick usually dies because the act of breaking out of the shell activates all the systems of the chick's newly formed body the circulatory system, the muscular system, solidifies the skeletal system. And if someone helps the chick break out of the shell, then the, the chick isn't strong enough to survive without the shell. Well, that's weird. I like the chicken analogy because what we often do when we are at the receiving end of other people's stupidity is we build a nice little shell around ourselves. And I think that that's normal, and I think that that's actually good. But at some point, you've got to break the shell off. And you got to turn into the alchemist living outside of the shell. I know I'm mixing my metaphors terribly here, but you got to make something. You got to convert the misery into joy. You got to take the rejection and turn it into happiness. You got to take feelings of being a victim and convert them into love. You got to stop looking for truth as immaculately conceived and start to appreciate truth as a process in which all experience plays a part and nothing is coincidental. Well, that's weird, and I know that it challenges some of our most foundational ideas about what church and the gospel really are supposed to do for us. It starts to address, in a very subversive way, notions about truth claims and being chosen of being a properly functioning member in the correct tribe. But all those notions are ephemeral, short-term, And should lead you ultimately to transformation. And no one transforms screaming about how unfair life is. One transforms by asking why the experience was set up to begin with. These are weird ideas, I know. But the best people, the most zen-like, the most charitable, those with the most to contribute, seem to have figured them out. They seem to know that it's not the event. It's... The reactions that the event produces, it's all the internal processes, all the things that the event forces you to consider. And force is probably the wrong word. It's just all the things that you do consider. You're not forced to consider. You just do automatically. And if you pay attention to those reactions, build upon them, be conscious of them, aware of them, then you, you start being quite grateful for the event no matter what it is. Rejection, acceptance, bullying, love, whatever it is you get closer to what Shirzad Shamanin has preached for years and years and years, as articulated in his book, Positive Intelligence. And that is namely, everything is good. Now, I know some people are gonna be listening to this line of thinking and say, Jack, you're just making excuses for the bad behavior of others. You're accepting and justifying and indulging, allowing, however you wanna think about it. You're you're allowing or at worst, fostering bad conduct by other people and saying, well, you just need to learn from it. And when really, these critics will say, the other people need to change. The other people need to learn and change their conduct. That it's as simple as that. This is sort of right. I mean, if you're a bully or manipulative, if you're like the deacon's quorum advisor, or if you're an unaware rah rah person or you're manipulative or mean spirited, you've rejected people, you've mistreated people, misjudged them, condemned them, I agree. Got some work to do. As Jesus said, there will be offenses in this world, but woe to the offender. That's a true principle, but I don't think Jesus was saying it, emphasizing that we all need to wait for offenders to change their conduct. He was acknowledging, yes, if you're doing offensive things, you need to change your conduct. But the more important thing is how we all respond to the offenses, because there are going to be offenses. And if Jesus' life taught anything, it's how to respond properly to offenses. There's way more in the New Testament, in the gospel specifically, about how one should treat others who are being unkind, how one should treat one's enemies. And I think Jesus, by acknowledging that that woe to the offenders, by acknowledging that offenders will need to change, I mean, he acknowledges that. He's throwing us a bone. But by acknowledging that, he's redirecting us back to the issue at hand for most of us, which is being aware of and being conscious of and learning from all the reactions that you're going to have to offenses. It's a heavy burden to take responsibility for yourself and your reactions when other people are so clearly in the wrong, to be grateful for the offenses because they teach you so much, to appreciate rejection, to appreciate when a spouse leaves you or you're fired from a job because of all the things it's going to teach you. It's hard to be grateful for those type of things. It's hard to pray for those who are the catalyst of these, our toughest, experiences. But this is part of the straight and narrow path to sanity and happiness and peace. Because if you're always railing against those who have railed against you, if you're fighting fire with fire, if you're not grateful for all of experience as good and beneficial, you paradoxically end up full of bitterness. That seems patently unfair. It seems patently unfair that God has constructed the world in which we live to work that way. Why should it be that I have the burden to make something positive out of a negative rah-rah bullying type of experience when I was 12 years old? Why is that my job? The answer, of course, is who else's job should it be? We have free agency, that's true, but it's our free agency, personally. It stops the borders of our head or our skin or it doesn't extend out everywhere to everybody. We can only control how we think, how we feel, how we respond. And no one else, likewise, can control how you think, how you feel, how you respond. That's a tough lesson to learn in life. But I think it's part and parcel of the gift of agency, the gift to choose. We sometimes act as though we can control others and we'd like them to control us. We'd like others to make us feel better and we'd like to be able to make them stop doing things that bug us. And the sad facts are that nothing is further from the truth. These truths are part of the rod of iron, too, I think. Should be part of our testimonies. Should be taught more. Maybe when I get a chance to do those things, I'll remember. I hope so. Well, I've gone on far too long. Hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail.com or find me at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Until next time.